God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear, for perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his Son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It is so good to have you here, those of you here in the room. Uh, glad that uh, we can be back together this week. And those of you in Skagit, I'm grateful that you're able to meet again this morning. And appreciate the uh, grace last week as uh, many of our staff were sick and to be able to just kind of take that week of being online. For those of you who are online, it's good to have you with us uh, joining every single week. And I want to just give a special shout out to those of you in San Pedro and Belize, the gathering that meets down there. It was such a joy to be with you last weekend in Belize. And... Uh, Sorry, the weather was fantastic. Your hospitality was amazing, and uh, all of you, uh, what you're doing down there are so grateful, and I felt so honored that you served me Gibnut. That was amazing, uh, the royal rat, and it was fantastic. So, God bless you on that. Hey, a uh, couple things real quick before I start the sermon. Uh, I wanna say for anyone who, uh, in person or online, who made a contribution to uh, Cornwall Church and the ministries here in the last year in 2021. I wanna say thank you for your faithfulness to the tithe and obedience there and your generosity and your offerings. You should have received an email about a week and a half ago. In that email is embedded a, about a one minute video from me and then the, our finance department put on that the attachment of your giving um, statement for this last year. You can use that for your own records or for tax purposes. If some of you deleted that email and you're waiting for your tax statement, it was January 19th that you received that email. We can resend it, but I also wanted to, just to let you be aware of that as we get into that. For some of you, that's important for your taxes. And I uh, just wanna let you know that's how that was delivered this, this uh, year. And again, thank you so much for your generosity to allow us to continue to to minister in the way that God has called us to. The second thing is we're just down to our last two days of our 21 days of prayer and fasting and I've been praying for you. I hope that this has been a great experience and, uh, and if you've had some struggles, we still have a couple more days today and tomorrow in this 21 days that we are collectively praying and fasting, uh, emptying out so that we can fill up, disconnecting from the world so we can connect to the kingdom of God and, and become more like Christ. So I hope that's uh, been an incredible experience for you this year and you're becoming more like Jesus. 22 years ago next week, um, uh, my wife and I got married. Our 22nd anniversary is next weekend. And on our honeymoon, we flew to Cancun, and then we were going down to a place called Playa del Carmen to spend some time in the sun. And when we landed in Cancun, um, we weren't renting a car. There was a shuttle that was going to take us down to our hotel. Well, the shuttle van was taking multiple people to different hotels. And so as we got on this van, everyone's excited. We're in Mexico. We're going to be on vacation. And a lot of activity in this van of talking and laughing and talking about their vacations. And, and we don't know each other. There's a few couples that are together and during IR. So we're kind of getting to know each other. 
other where we're from, where we're staying, and what's going on. And, and one guy's back there, and he's talking about his all-inclusive hotel that's going, and he does not plan to get sober until the flight home. And that was his plan for the week and all this. And then they found out that we had just gotten married, so they're real excited about that, asking where we're staying, just got married. Asking where we're from, it's north of Seattle, because no one knows where Bellingham or Ferndale is, and so north of Seattle. And we're all talking, find out where everybody's from, and then one guy says, hey, Bob, what is it you do up there north of Seattle? And I said, I'm a pastor. And it's like this wet blanket just draped the entire van. All laughter extinguished, all conversation stopped, and it was silent, I mean awkwardly silent. Until one guy broke the, the silence in the back of the van and he said these words, forgive me, Father, for I'm about to sin. <laughs> and then he added, a lot. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, okay, I absolve you. I, yeah, I don't know. And, and I got to thinking, you know what? Maybe I could kind of operate this prepaid forgiveness service. You know, on a sliding scale, of course, depending on the, the gravity of your sin and how much you plan to sin. And, and, you know, I mean, the Catholic Church did away with buying indulgences in the 16th century, but maybe I could reinstitute that whole thing. Now, some of you are saying, great idea. You know, you're ready to write a check, because I'm going to Vegas, so can I get that taken care of? Now, listen, the issue of sin in our life is what we're going to talk about today, and it's not uh, going to be a second offering to absolve you of sins that way. We are in a study of the book of, called 1 John. It's a document in the back of the New Testament, not the Gospel of John. And if you have your Bible or if you have a tablet or a phone, I would love for you to turn to 1 John. We're gonna be looking at chapter two, starting into chapter two today. Again, if you're looking and if you've got uh, the old school Bible, it's not the Gospel of John. Go back more pages, clear back to the end. There's these tiny little documents, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We're gonna look in, into chapter two. This is our third week in the series. And today we're only gonna look at the first three verses. In fact, last night I barely got through the first two. So we're gonna try to at least touch on verse three. And what you're gonna find in these first two verses of 1 John chapter two is some of the most beautiful, deep, rich theology that you can imagine. In fact, there's even, we're gonna use some, some theological words that you're not uh, normally a part of your vernacular, most likely. But what we will find is if we understand this deep theology, it is incredibly good news for us. And then at the end of that, by understanding all this, there's some real practical life applications for how we live out in light of this theology. So we're, we're gonna get there. Um, as we get into this, uh, I just wanna kinda uh, remind you a little bit of the book, if you've been with us in this series. This document was written from a, a man who had been a pastor of some people. His name is John. He's stuck on the island of Patmos. He's writing back to this church that he pastored, these churches in the area of Ephesus. And he loves these people. He, he poured his life into, their, into them. He had spent years with them. And in the church, word has gotten him that some false teachers has, have made their way into the church. And because of that, there's some misunderstandings about Christ and who he is and is he really God and is he really human. And there's been some misunderstandings about what it means to live and to live your life in the light instead of in the darkness. And so he writes this, it's basically he writes a sermon to correct some of these things. And that's what we've been looking at. What is speculated is one of the, one of the false teachings that made its way into the church was this thing called Gnosticism. Real briefly, just a, a portion of Gnosticism would say that there's this dualism in our world. There's the spirit realm and then there's the physical realm. And that anything that is material, anything that's matter, the world, the universe, our bodies, that matter, it's all broken, it's fallen, it's evil, it's horrible, it's unredeemable. 
But anything of the Spirit is good and uncorruptible and it's beautiful and wonderful. But the problem in Gnosticism is that never the twain shall meet, that the, the good can never be corrupted and the bad can never be redeemed. And because of that, there was this fallacy about Jesus. He could not have been both God and man. We covered that two weeks ago. One of the problems as well is that it played out in our lives because they recognized that there was spirit within them. But as Sting wrote years ago when he was with the police, we are spirits in a material world. Our spirits in a material world. Or for some of you, we live in a material world and I'm a material girl. So you've got this dichotomy, you've got this issue. That was Madonna, for those of you who are saying, is that in the Bible? No. <laughs> so you've got this issue that spirit is good and, and matter is bad, and how do you work with that within our own bodies, that we're spirits within our bodies? So there were two extremes. One was a very rigid, ascetic lifestyle, that if this body of mine, this matter, is evil, then it ought to be put under, it ought to be punished. And so people would live this ascetic lifestyle. They would fast and they would starve themselves and, and they were, there'd be this self-mortification and, and self-flagellation with these whips and they would punish themselves and they would, that some of them, I mean, you read about some of them would, would live on a pole for years at a time on nothing but moldy bread and stale water and just these horrible things because the body and the flesh is evil and it ought to be punished. The other extreme was if this body is wicked and evil and broken and cannot be redeemed, then it doesn't matter what I do with this body. It's like a, a, a soiled, disposable Tyvek suit doesn't, can't be redeemed, so it doesn't matter. So with that, I've got this spirit inside me that's good. This body, it's just throwaway, so I can eat, drink, and get jiggy. It does not matter at all because what I do in this body is not sin. It's separate from my spirit. Now, I want to ask you, which extreme do you think most people would choose on this one? <laughs> this self-mortification or this life of indulgence? So, so there's this address to these people that, that are feeling like, what we're doing is not sin because this is this evil body. As Pastor Kip pointed out last week, he addresses that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10. He says, if you claim to be without sin, which some are saying, we're not sinning. If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself and you make God out to be a liar. But then there was this beautiful verse that he, he, he preached on last week. 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's where we left off last week. And as John is writing these things to these people who've had all this false teaching, I think he understands that while they may suddenly realize, yes, they do have sin, and this sin can be forgiven, that it's possible they would slip back into this old lifestyle saying, I've got a blanket policy, it doesn't matter, I can continue to sin because it's forgiven. He's faithful, all I have to do is confess it. I can just keep sinning, confess, sinning, confess, sinning, confess. And so he continues to address these issues. That's where we're ready to get into it? First John chapter two, verse one, he says this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I'm not writing this to you so you can go on sinning. I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. And look how he starts off. My dear children. He loves these people. He's like, they're like, he's like a father to them. He's their shepherd. He's their pastor. And he longs for them to have the best life that God has called and created them to live in. And as almost like a father, he's giving them this instruction. I think about the picture of a father speaking to a child of trying to help them, save them from a lot of hurt and a lot of damage, a lot of regrets. 
be like a, a, a parent who tries to explain to their 16-year-old child, yes, we do have full coverage on the car, but that does not mean drive it like it's stolen. Yes, you can go out and pretend you're in the demolition derby, and yes, the insurance will cover it, but that's not what I want you to do. That's not why we have insurance. Yes, it's covered, but, but there's gonna be some pain that you're gonna experience, and you might hurt and damage other people, and there's gonna be consequences. And what he's saying to them is, yes, there is forgiveness for your sins, but every sin you committed has a built-in consequence. And I want to save you from the pain of that, the regret of that, the scars of that, the remorse from that. I don't want you to damage yourself. I don't want you to damage others. I don't want you to damage your relationships. And I don't want you to damage your relationship with God. This is something we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? When Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, he says, wherever sin increased, grace increased all the more. Then chapter 6 says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, he says, you have died to sin. That's not how we live this way. Or in Hebrews chapter 12, when it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. That this sin will trip us up. The sin will, it will, will hold us back. N.T. Wright uh, famous New, New Testament scholar, he wrote these words, sinners need to know that Jesus has died for them and that they can be fully and freely forgiven. Forgiven sinners need to know that this is not a reason to go on sinning. Now, last night, my mom watched the, the sermon and she sent me a text. She said, we will never be sinless, but we can sin less. I said, mom, I'm gonna quote you in church tomorrow. So this verse that Pastor Kip closed with last week out of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But the reason for, for this forgiveness is not just to keep us out of hell, not just a kind of a fire insurance. I mean, as a child, I remember as a child living with such fear that every night before I fall, fell asleep, I would just lay in bed and say, God, forgive me for whatever I did today because I don't want to wake up in hell. Which, by the way, is a horrible, horrible way to live. This fear-based, and some of you grew up with that and maybe still have it. You've got to cast that aside. That is not what God wants. That this forgiveness isn't just to make sure that I don't wake up in hell. Remember what Pastor Kip pointed out to us and what we've seen throughout this series. Is that the purpose of forgiveness is fellowship. This whole idea of this fellowship, this oneness with God. This union, remaining with, walking with, abiding in. This sweet communion that we have, this, to, to be invited into the very unity of the Trinity and to be a part of his family. That's the purpose. It's not just, I gotta get my, my, my ticket out of hell. That's good. But what about right now? To live in union and walk in fellowship with Jesus. And then he throws in this little caveat. So he says, you know, I, I write this stuff to you so that you will not sin. Then he throws in this little caveat. We're still in verse one. Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, does that strike any of you as a little funny? But if? Like he's saying, in the unlikely event, you know, hypothetically, not you guys, of course, people from CTK. In the unlikely event, 
in the unlikely event that one of you, perhaps, if it were to happen, if anybody were to sin, I'm thinking, you don't need the word if in there, at least not for me. You can swap out the word if with when, but when anybody sins, not, not this if. You remember years ago that, that show Mythbusters with Amy and Jack, and Jamie and, and Adam? I love Mythbusters. And they would take a, a common myth that had been stated and then they would test it out to come to one of three conclusions. That the myth was busted, that it was plausible, or that it was confirmed. Now when it comes to if anyone happens to sin, this goes beyond plausible. It goes beyond possible. It goes beyond probable. I mean, this one's confirmed, I, I think. I mean, maybe you're not like me, but I would never say, well, you know, for the remainder of my, my life, if I were to say, I, I just wouldn't say that. Because you know, some of you pray that prayer, lead us not into temptation, because I can find it all on my own. I, I don't need any help, of course I can find that. There, years ago, there was a group called the Pistol Annies, a couple, three uh, country singers came together. They sang this song, I Feel a Sin Coming On. Like, it's, it's, antici- it's, it's premeditated. I feel a sin coming on. I'm going out partying. I feel a sin coming on. If someone were to sin, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. He throws this little caveat. But in the unlikely event that any of you actually would sin, he says we have good news. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, some of your translations will use the word advocate. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate to speak in our defense. We have an advocate. I I love that. Someone that's going to step up to the plate and speak on our behalf. I don't know if you have ever been in a situation where there's an issue of some sort. It really doesn't matter what the issue is. The meal is cold. The order was wrong. A relational breakdown. Someone bullied you, cheated you, whatever. And someone says, let me handle this. Maybe a spouse, maybe a mama bear figure, maybe your buddy that's all jacked up on something. Let me handle this. And there's inside of you just like cringe, like, no, no, don't handle this for me. Because you know, no, no, no elbows right now. <laughs> you know, if they handle it, they're gonna make a scene, it's gonna be embarrassing, and on the back end, it's gonna be worse. It's gonna be a bigger deal than it is right now. Just don't handle it for me. Anyone, okay, don't point to, but anyone know what I'm talking about in that? Like, yeah, yeah, don't handle it for me. But there may be other situations where there's a situation and you're kind of in a, in a mess and someone says, you know what, I'll, I'll take care of that for you. And you're like, sweet. Well, here we have this situation, the unlikely event, where there is a circumstance, where there is a mistake, where there's a mess that's been made, where something's not right, where there's a relational breakdown. But this is because we have sinned against a holy God, and Jesus says, let me handle this. This is amazing. That Jesus, in this court of our sin, Jesus is our defense attorney. That Jesus goes and says, I will speak on your behalf. Let me handle this. Let me talk. Like, Bob, you messed up. You stick with me. Don't say a word. We'll go to the Father. I'll talk, I'll take care of it. Don't talk. Like the more you say, the worse it's gonna get. And whatever you do, whatever you do, Bob, 
Don't come in with your list of righteous things that you think you've done that's gonna make it better. That, that won't work. And listen, if you ever think, well, when I stand before God, I'm gonna tell him all the good things I've done. You don't understand the holiness of God and you don't understand the gravity and the egregious nature of sin and you don't understand what Isaiah said, that even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You stand before the th judgment throne of God and say, hey, I've got a whole list of things of why you should let me into heaven and why you ought to judge. That is not gonna work. But who's our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Romans 3 says, none are righteous, but only Jesus is. And Jesus steps up as our defense attorney, and he says, let me talk. Let me handle this. Let me represent you. Now that, in that, that first verse, I mean, that's, that's just verse 1, that is such good news for us. You know, that, that we are to avoid sin, but in the unlikely event that we actually do sin, we have an advocate who speaks to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Well, I, 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 I didn't need clapping, but I just like, at least a mm-hmm, something. That's unbelievable. It gets even better. Verse two. This one who is our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The atoning sacrifice in the Greek, there's one word that's it's translated into the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't have a good English word. Some of your translations may use this word. And here's one of these theological words. It's the word propitiation. Probably not something you've used in the last 24, 48 hours. But he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now again, this is one of those areas where we could talk for hours and there have been volumes that have been written and there's a lot of disagreement amongst theologians. But let me just give you on this whole word, this atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, there really are three words that are interwoven in this idea of propitiation. One is propitiation, which is really that the requirements have been fulfilled. Like there's a sin and... Um, and there's a penalty that must be paid, and that penalty has been paid. But there's a second word that's a part of this idea too, and it's expiation. And expiation is that, yes, the, the penalty has been paid. Expiation is that the guilt has been taken care of. The, there's a removal of guilt, like ex, like exfoliate is remove that dead skin. Ex, expiate, expiation is the removal of guilt and the third word is atonement because, yes, the penalty has been paid and the guilt has been removed. Atonement is that the relationship has been repaired at one mint. We're back in relationship with God. And these three things happen. This is, oh man, this is where you find the roots of this clear back in Leviticus 16. Now, for better or for worse, Leviticus gets a bad rep, doesn't it? I mean, just like Leviticus, snoozer, weird, awful. Okay, and, and granted, some of it is bizarre. But in Leviticus 16, there's this beautiful chapter. And it's this picture of propitiation where God sets out the, the parameters to deal with the sins of Israel. That one day a year, there would be a day called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and that the, great, or that the high priest would deal with all the sins from the year before. Like, you know, I talked about the giving statement from 2021, this would be your sinning statement from 2021. And he's, this is how it's, it's all laid out. 
that the, the high priest would go through, and you can read this on your own. This is really actually a cool chapter in Leviticus. High priest goes through all this cleansing to make himself pure, and then he gets two goats, two goats, and then they cast lots or kind of flip a coin. For one of the goats, because there is a penalty for sin, there's death that needs to happen, this goat is sacrificed in the place of others. So it is sacrificed. The other goat, the priest lays his hands on his head and puts on this goat all of the guilt of the entire nation, and then someone leads this goat out of the camp, like way away from the camp, and takes their guilt away. So the one goat is the propitiation, that the penalty has been fulfilled. The other goat is the expiation, that the guilt has been removed, and now they can have a right relationship with God, this at-one-ment, this atonement. Okay, let me, let me try it this way. These goats, then, are like a substitution for what the nation deserves. The penalty and the guilt, all that. It's, it's this, this substitution, in the place of. About 10 years ago, maybe better, 10, 12 years ago, there were some books that, that just um, blew up in the, the younger generation, primarily uh, genre, and uh, it's called The Hunger Games. I don't know if you remember that. I never read the books, but the movies, I went to see the movies with my daughters who were younger at that. And we'd go see these movies, The Hunger Games. And in The Hunger Games, there's this, um, these games, and it's the 74th annual uh, competition of The Hunger Games. In this dystopian world or whatever, there, there's these 12 districts. And the idea is that there's a boy and girl that it's taken from each of the 12 districts, and they compete. The problem is, they compete to death. So it's kind of like a gladiatorial games. Well, in this scene, in the 12th district, no one volunteers. Obviously, no one's real excited about this. And so names are drawn, and the name of this little girl is drawn. Her name is Primrose Everdeen. Her name is drawn. Her older sister, Katniss, hears this. And so here's this little girl, this innocent little primrose. She's being volunteered out of the bucket from, from District 12 to fight in these games that will probably cause her death. And she's scared and, and it's awful. Katniss sees this, can't go for it. She's screaming, no, no. And then she says, I volunteer, I volunteer, I volunteer. And then she uses this word, I volunteer as tribute. I volunteer as tribute. I'll take her place. Put me in. Take her out that she would go instead of her little sister. That she, and, and here's another one of these, these, uh, these words that are, that are kind of ones that we don't use a whole lot, that she would, um, she would interpose herself between her sister and this game. That's a little bit of a picture of what we're talking about. She's going instead of. And what you see is all throughout Scripture, starting in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, they're covered with guilt and shame, and God takes the life of innocent animals so that their guilt and their shame can be covered over in their place. Exodus chapter 12, when the, pa when the Passover comes and the death angel is coming, and God says to all the Israelites before they're leaving e Egypt that you would kill an animal an innocent animal, and put the blood over your doorpost, and when the death angel comes, it will pass over your house because that animal took that death. 
And then as we saw in Leviticus chapter 16, these two goats, the scapegoat and the sacrifice, that was the propitiation, the expiation. And all of it is a foreshadowing pointing to what Jesus would do, and it would be fulfilled when Jesus comes. So that when Jesus' his birth is predicted, as we remember in Christmas, Matthew chapter 1, where the angel says to Joseph, and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 30 years later, his cousin, his relative, sees him, John the Baptist, and says, behold, Jesus, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if we had time, Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9 is such a beautiful picture. Oh, man, I wish we had three hours today. Read it on your own. Hebrews 7, 8, 9 just says how all this stuff that happened from way back in Leviticus 16 is now fulfilled and finalized in Jesus that he's not just a high priest. He's the great high priest. He no longer has to sacrifice bulls and rams and goats and sheep. He has one final sacrifice once and for all, and that sacrifice is himself. Man, oh man. Because... This must be a real sleeper for you guys. This is amazing to me. The, the old hymn, maybe we'll wake up with a hymn. Come thou found. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the substitutionary atonement for us. Now some of you might be saying, all this blood, all this killing, these sacrifices, the animals, that, that just, that, that sounds like, like archaic religion. Some malevolent deity, some capricious entity up there that requires people to die and throw the virgin in the volcano or whatever. I mean, it just, it just seems like, you know, it seems like so archaic. Really? Our God? Really? No, 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 no. What you don't understand is all of this is because of God's justice and his love. Not because of anger and because he somehow has to be appeased. It's his justice and his love. Because think about this, that the initiation of the propitiation is from God. His justice demands it. His love provides for it. I mean, we see this again and again, where it just talks about how God has done this out of his love for us, that, that he would do this for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, it says that all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself. He's the one that did the reconciling. He reconciled us to him. I mean, the reality is we're the ones that broke down the relationship. We ought to be the ones responsible for reconciling. We ought to be the ones trying to get back into God's graces. No, no, he is the one. He's been offended, but he is the one who initiates the propitiation. He is the one that reconciles us to himself. Or in Colossians chapter one, where it's just that beautiful passage of the supremacy of Christ, it says, what God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, things in heaven and on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's what God did. And I know I'm jumping way ahead in our study of 1 John, but in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. There's that word again, that propitiation, 
that he sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's what God did to bring us back. And then if we had another hour, we could go into Romans chapter 3, which is an amazing chapter on this whole thing, that where it does say that there's none righteous, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all of us can be saved by his grace, justified through his grace, because God presented him as an atoning sacrifice, the propitiation. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. And then it says in verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, God is just, and that justice demands that there's a punishment, there's a penalty, and he is the justifier, and he says, and I will make sure that that's taken care of. So back to our court. Jesus says, Bob, you messed up. Let me take care of this, come with me, don't say a word. So we go into the court. I got this thing that's just driving me nuts. There we go. Go into the court. Jesus comes in. Father, yes, son. It's Bob Marvel. I know. Created him in his mother's womb. Got it. Well, an unlikely event happened. He sinned. I know, I saw it. Well, I'm just begging that you would be merciful. Okay. Good to go. All right. Next day. Father, yes, son. It's Bob Marvel. I don't know. Got the hairs on his head numbered. Hey, um, an unlikely, unlikely event happened. He sinned. Yeah, I know. And uh, I'm just begging, would, would you be merciful with him? I'm just, would you be merciful with him? Okay, good, good. I mean, how many times are we going to do this? Because in my mind, I'm thinking there's going to come a day where I'm like, Father, Yes, son. Bob Marvel. Yeah, I know. I know every thought that he ever says. I know every word before it comes off his mouth. Got every, all the days of his life numbered. Uh, an unlikely event happened. And God says, please. <laughs> Enough already. This unlikely event, we have these court every single day. And, and it's like this mercy is going to run out or something. But here's the beautiful thing about this is that we're not talking about mercy, but justice. It's not about mercy, but justice. What does that say in 1 John 1, 9? That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? No, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's how it goes. Father, yes, son, Bob Marvel, got it. An unlikely event happened again. And Father, Bob sinned. And Father, Bob is guilty. And Father, Bob deserves the death penalty. Agreed. But Father, I have already died that death that he deserves. And so it would not be just for you to punish him for that which has already been paid for. Hold that thought. In our Constitution, in the Fifth Amendment, there's a little thing called the Double Jeopardy Clause. Has nothing to do with the game show. The Double Jeopardy Clause finds its roots clear back in Roman law because there was this Latin phrase in Roman law 
non bis in item, not twice for the same. And the whole idea is that if you have been found guilty and you have paid that penalty, you cannot be convicted of that sin again. You cannot, of that crime, you cannot be punished for that again. So here's Jesus, and he stands before the Father. He says, God, you know the double jeopardy law. It would not be just. I've already died the death he deserves. It would not be just for you to cause him to die because I've already done that. It's already been paid for. Jesus goes to us as our advocate. He goes as this atoning sacrifice, not begging for mercy, but demanding justice because he has already taken care of it. Come on, give me some love here. That is amazing. That he is a merciful God, he is a just God, and he is a loving God. And it goes even beyond that. He doesn't just give me a clean slate. You give me a clean slate, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna mess it up again. It goes beyond that. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter five. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another, thank you, another big theological word is this word imputed, imputed. My sin is imputed on Jesus who has never ever sinned. His righteousness, the righteous one, is imputed on me. So now, I don't just have a clean slate, I have the righteousness of Christ because of what he's done for me. So now when I stand before the Lord, yes, I've sinned, but that sin has been forgiven and it's been taken care of and now God sees the righteousness of Christ in my life and on my life. Now, we've gotta keep going because we've gotta get through verse two. First John chapter two, verse two. He is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sin. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The good news of the gospel. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the high priests. It's not just for the rabbis. I mean, it was for the Greeks and the Gentiles and the slaves and the barbarians and the Scythians and the Americans. It's for all of us that what Jesus has done is sufficient for all. I'm just gonna cut that section out of my sermon because I'm out of time. But when you look at this, this, this passage of these first two verses, he says, yeah, yeah, there's forgiveness, but you avoid sin. Avoid sin. Like, sin less. This isn't like the, the carte blanche just blanket rule, just go for it. He says, no, 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 avoid sin so that you will not sin. But in the unlikely event that you do sin, you have an advocate that will act as your defense attorney, and he's not just speaking for you, he is also the atoning sacrifice so that he can ask for justice on your behalf. And because it's on his, uh, what he has done, you have assurance in your fellowship with the Father. That is good news. Now, with all that in mind, if you begin to understand that and grip that, and it grips you, and you know what Jesus has done for you, and you know who Jesus is, and you know how he loves you, and you know how he's your advocate, and he knows, you know how he is the atoning sacrifice for you, and you know that, that will change you. Now, verse three, real quick, and then I'm gonna stop because we'll, we'll do this next week, okay? Verse three, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. This is how it plays out. Because of what Christ has done, now we live a life of obedience to him. And so many times we think of obedience as such a negative thing. Don't you understand? 
He is the one who knows all things. He knows and wants the very best for you. He gave his life for you so you could have the very best. And he says, listen, if I say no to something, it's not because I'm trying to ruin your life. It's because I'm trying to, as a father, trying to help you understand, don't drive your life like you're in a demolition derby. I want to save you from pain. I want to save you from regrets. I want to save you from relational breakdown. I want to save you from those scars. This whole idea of obedience, if you're a slave, you have to obey out of fear. If you're an employee, you need to obey to earn it. But our relationship with God is not as a slave to a slave master. It's not as an employee to an employer. We have fellowship with God as sons and daughters of our, of our Heavenly Father, as prince and princesses of the King of God in the kingdom of God. And that relationship is not because we have to out of fear. It's not because we need to because we're trying to earn it. It's because we want to because of what he's done for us. Obedience let me just fill these blanks in for those of you who are taking notes. Not on a foundation of fear based on performance. Don't live that way. But on a foundation of love coming from assurance. Too many of us live an if-then instead of a since-then life. If I'm obedient, if I strive for holiness, if I don't do these things, if I do these things, if, 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 then maybe God will be okay with me. How about this? Since Christ has done all this, since he is my advocate, since he is my atoning sacrifice, since he has forgiven my sins, since he has called me his son or daughter, since I'm a part of his kingdom, since I have fellowship with him, since I have all that, then I will obey and I will live a life of holiness and I will pursue him. That, that, that song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. And Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse uh, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So here's what I desire for all of us, that we would live a life of obedience, that we would continue to strive for and pursue a life of holiness, not out of fear, not out of somehow trying to earn not out of this, this whole idea of legalism or performance, but out of gratitude because of the assurance of the relationship we already have in freedom and in love so that the fellowship with the Father and His Son is sweeter and sweeter each day.